This week's scripture reading is 1 Peter 1, 17 through 21. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Peter has been helping us understand a few things. First of all, he's been helping us understand how God is at work now. What is he doing right now? We talk a lot in the church about what God is doing in the future and what God has done in the past. But the question that we answered a few weeks ago now is, what is God doing right now? In the midst of struggle and trials, what is he doing now? And we talked a few weeks ago about Largely, he's, he's working through three words, as, as Peter describes it. Grief, trials, and testing. And then we talked about that the deep abiding joy, deep, rich, sustaining joy, comes, at least in part, when we understand that God is continually using these circumstances these situations, these trials, this testing, to deliver us to what our hearts most greatly desire, and that is this, the salvation of our souls. I don't have time to rehash all of that, but all of our hearts, even depraved, lost people desire the salvation of their souls. It's the issue is, is where do we look for that salvation? But we all desire that. And so when God is working right now in these times, in these days, in our lives, through grief, trials, testing, He is working to give us what our hearts most greatly desire, and that is the salvation of our souls through Him. Now I want to give you, as, as we again work through this entire book, I, I want to remind you that as we work through books like this, we are building and building and building on a foundation, and we're building on much of what I just told you, we're building upon that foundation, and it is nearly impossible to remind you of every aspect of the foundation at every step of our journey through this book. So I want to encourage you as you take notes, as you listen to podcasts, whatever it is, that that you go back and you refresh your memory of these things that we've learned in the beginning of 1 Peter. You see now, starting last week, as Pastor Rusty preached, we turn to what's really considered the ethical portion of the book, the, the do's and don'ts. We turn to the, the list of you should act this way, and you shouldn't act this way, and you should live this way, and not this way, and you should not con- commit these sins, and you should walk in this kind of holiness, and, and it's really easy to to misunderstand that, to misapply that, to, to, to really walk away uh, 
in an unhealthy way from God's Word if we don't remember what the beginning of this letter has said. And starting last week again, we were commanded, as Rusty said, to, to walk obediently daily in fear of a holy God. Now isn't it astounding to you, it is to me at least, that, that in the midst of the, by and large, the suffering context of First Peter, the grief, the exile, etc., that, that Peter, in the midst of that, has the audacity to call them to obedience and holiness. In the midst of that, I mean, Peter, can't you just be a little more sensitive to us? I, I mean, can't, can't we just sit and cry for a little while? Can't, we, can't you just excuse our sinfulness for just a bit? we got a lot going on over here. Now, now listen, yes, I, I have to give this caveat. Yes, there are appropriate times to sit and mourn and comfort the suffering and such. Absolutely. Absolutely. There are times to sit with victims of suffering and simply mourn with them and grieve with them. Absolutely. I'm not, not denying I don't think Peter is denying that. But the problem is that what defines much of our vision for helping the suffering is driven by either what we like or think feels good or appropriate or driven by what the culture says is good and appropriate for someone in the midst of trials and suffering and not defined by what God says is good for us. In the midst of suffering, Peter, I'm sure, would have sat with various people in their struggles and in their times of suffering and cried and grieved with them. But Peter also calls them to action. He calls them to something beyond themselves, to move outside of themselves and to look to another in the midst of their troubles, which is really the key phrase here, to look to another in the midst of their troubles. And this week we're going to continue that same thought. Holiness and our responsibility to pursue it. I really titled today uh, Values and Holiness, and you'll see why in a few moments. But the idea of holiness and a Christian's responsibility to pursue it is admittedly, as I sat to, to work through this this week, realized it's a bit more of a challenging topic than what I... Uh, would like to preach, but nevertheless, I have no choice, right? That's why we preach through books of the Bible. It's a challenging topic to discuss because there are so many misconceptions when it comes to pursuing holiness or being holy or being moral. Many misconceptions. We don't have time to go through all of them, but I want to give you kind of two very quick as, as an introduction to this passage that we're in this morning, a couple misconceptions that you are likely coming into this conversation with. The first is this. Many of us grew up in, or are very familiar with, a legalistic culture. I would argue that all of us are familiar with legalism. We have all lived by legalism, and we all tend to live by legalism. That is our default. That, that we could, by some means other than Jesus, be right with God. You didn't have to grow up in a fundamentalist church to be uh, uh, introduced or to be raised in legalism. Legalism is anything apart from God. The, the pursuit of being right with the Almighty apart from Jesus. And you don't need a church to teach you that concept. 
But in this culture, particularly if you grew up in some measure of a legalistic church culture, in that culture, holiness was largely an outward thing. It was, it was about looking good in front of others and kind of a polishing the outside of the bowl to use Jesus' terms. Holiness was functionally something that kept God happy with me. Uh, you know, if the church's doors are open, we got to be there, right? If you, I don't know if you've heard that phrase or not. Now, I do think that's a good thing to live by, but it, it's a terrible thing to make you right with God as opposed to Jesus. Now, uh, part of the reason I know that there are many of us brought up in this culture, not because I know your stories, but because many of us still believe this is true. That, that holiness is an outward thing. It's about looking good in front of others, or it's functionally something that keeps God happy with me. Many of us still live this way. It's why we can't openly talk about our sin. It's why we've got to look good in front of other people. Or, let me, let me say it a little bit different way, because some of you will be like, oh yeah, I talk about my sin. Or the sins you share are so common and are shallow it doesn't really confess or reveal anything about you. Many of us still live this way. It's why we can't see our sin. That's why we're blinded to it. Because if we grew up in some measure of a legalistic culture, we've convinced ourselves probably that it's not there. Oh, I'm fine. I'm good. Right? Because what happens, and our mind is so good, our hearts are twisted, we're able to, to kind of suppress the reality of my brokenness. But if, if you have any clue what I'm talking about, you know that it still haunts you. You see, legalistic culture does not produce holy people. It produces Hiding people. I mean, think back again. Go, go back to the garden. Now, they weren't in a legalistic culture, but once they broke, what they do? What, what they, once they broke the command of God, what did they do? They hid. And that's where many of us are still today, in hiding. A legalistic culture. So that's a misconception. That's, a, that's an unfortunate piece of baggage that each of us carry into the conversation about holiness. The second one, I would say, is that the pursuit of holiness has taken a backseat to what, what I'll call cheap grace. That holiness, the pursuit and the command to pursue holiness has taken a backseat to a culture of not grace, but a culture of cheap grace. Uh, if you could allow me to nerd out for a second here, in the past century, there's been a movement called Free Grace. You can go, go look up the, the movement. I'd particularly encourage you to go look up and see the proponents of this movement. I think it would be quite surprising to you who's on that list. One of the fundamental promises, as I understand this movement of Free Grace, is this. That repentance cannot be a part of salvation because it is a work and you and I cannot do a work in our salvation. It is by faith alone. Now, now I agree that, that we can't do a, a work in our salvation. 
And if you believe that God is the one who elects and regenerates and brings in that work there and his calling and drawing is what brings about faith and repentance, then you don't have to worry about it being a work because it's still by God's grace. But if man is the pinnacle, uh, is the chief actor or the chief worker in salvation, then yes, then this can become a problem. But anyways, we digress. This is not, this idea of free grace and cheap grace is not just some random small collection of churches in the United States that is teaching us. It's actually been pushed by faculty of a very well-known seminary in Dallas, Texas. So as I say that to say this is not just a, a little subgroup of Christianity, but a, I would argue, I think it's a vast majority of the church culture today. Now I know most of you, again, you're like, okay, I, the, the movement, whatever, I, I, I don't know anything about that. But listen, in many ways, you're a child of that movement. Many of us are a child of this movement in our culture today. Listen, here's a couple of examples. If you came to our church, if you came to renovation without the understanding that repentance and faith are a necessary part of each and every moment of life, then in many ways, you are likely a child of this movement. Or if we struggle to hear our sin held accountable and to work through the repentance of that, we you're a child of this movement. It, it, listen, in this movement is, is this idea that if you talk about holiness too much, you'll create a culture of works. You'll create a culture of a works-based salvation if you talk about holiness too much. Or if you don't see it and practice, again, repentance and faith as a part of your walk with the Lord, then you're a child of this movement, whether you realized it or not. Again, what's happened is this. In response, I think, to this legalistic culture, we've swung to the other direction, and it's a neglect of God's holiness. Oh, that's something Jesus did. I could never do it. I'm covered by grace. And so we don't demand holiness. Or, or as I've often heard sermons preached, we, we talk about the holiness that a lot of us don't struggle with. And so it's a functional tickling of our ears. You know, it's seen, again, it's seen as too harsh. This demanding holiness is, in our culture, even in the broader church culture, is seen as too harsh. And some would even argue that if we talk too much about holiness and works, again, it will lead to a salvation by works. I would argue that it's not that we have an overemphasis of grace. Ultimately, it's that we don't have an understanding of grace at a very fundamental level. We think grace is God overlooking our sin, or maybe at best, God forgiving us of our sin. But grace is more than that. Grace is more than that. His grace is seen both in forgiving us of our sin and the joy from that gracious forgiveness empowers us too. Holiness. It's both. Grace does both. Grace and God's forgiveness and our delight in that gracious forgiveness empowers us to holiness. They both go together. 
So if this is the misconceptions at large, think about the broad evangelical culture in our country. Can you even tell that they are Christians anymore? I wonder why. Holiness is the f- one of the words furthest from our vocabulary. Even in lots of Bible-believing churches. So over the next few weeks, we're going to really dive into what Peter has to say about pursuing holiness. So the question is, right here, where does he begin? Now I'm going to go back you know, Rusty jumped into verse 17 there. I'm going to go back and readdress some of 17, and that's going to lead us into the rest of this section on pursuing holiness. But where does Peter begin? I agree. I agree with Paul Tripp. Peter begins by giving us three values that we must keep straight if we are to walk in daily obedience. That's where we're going to spend our time today. Three values from this passage that we must keep straight if we are to walk in daily obedience. You see, here's the key. Whatever you value, whatever you deem important at any given moment is what will drive you. Is what will st- Whether you are conscientious of it or not, whether you understand that that's what's going on or not, that, that's what's happening. And another way to say it, the ways that we've said it in the past is whatever you're worshiping in the moment or whatever you deem most important in the moment. We're going to use the word value this morning. Maybe that will communicate differently or strike a different chord in our affections and in our minds. Whatever you value, whatever you deem important at any given moment is what will steer you. It's what guides your thoughts, your actions, your affections. Keeping our values straight, though, is hard. Keeping what's most important, most important, is hard. Especially if we were to do that all day long, every day, for all of eternity. But it's crucial. And it's difficult. But here's how we tend to approach holiness. We say, be holy. Just do it. Do all these things. Don't do these things. And so we pick ourselves up and say, I'm going to be holy today. Or I'm going to be holy in this situation. Or I'm going to be holy in the way I handle this person. I'm just going to make these changes to my daily life. The problem, though, is that our values have to change because our values drive our decisions. Our values drive our tongues, our values drive the emotions expressed on our faces. Our values drive what we do. Let me give you some examples. Some of us value comfort. We want goodness. We see goodness as a, as a driving desire, which is a good thing. We should desire goodness, and, but we find goodness in comfort. And so we drive away from doing hard things, from finishing tasks, from having difficult conversations. We drive away from stress. Why? Because we value comfort. Because we want goodness in this comfort, because goodness in God is not enough. And so what happens is the pursuit of holiness gets replaced largely by escapism. We're going to run to something else because God isn't good enough 
for me. So what happens, again, if you think about this with me, if the value of comfort and the goodness found in that comfort is what's driving you, then what then it becomes the one that defines what is holy. And what is holy in that moment is not doing the hard things I should do, or not finishing the task God's called me to, or not having the difficult conversations. It becomes the the driving factor in our lives. Some of us value affirmation. And so we drive away from doing what honors God in favor of doing what will get this other person or the people around us to honor us. And so their definition of holiness, what will get them to honor us, becomes the driving reality. Or some of us value influence, and so we'll get angry or emotional when something doesn't go our way, or that child of ours just won't see life the way we want them to see it, or so on and so forth. You see, our values are out of whack, and Peter gives us three values here at the beginning of this call even in the midst of suffering and grief and trials, his call to holiness. Holiness. Values that will drive us to holiness if they become chief values in our hearts. The first one is this, the value of accountability. The value of accountability. 1 Peter 1, 17, verse 17 says this, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. <clears throat> we're going we're to spend probably the biggest chunk of our time this morning right here. But we'll, we'll move on to 18 through 21 in a minute. Here's why many of us don't pursue holiness with great determination. We have fallen for the lie that there is no or there is little accountability. Again, this cheap grace movement. We have fallen for the lie that there is little or no accountability. Now, now, now listen, we see this in our culture at large, outside the church as well, Abortion. Abortion is largely a denial of accountability. I want to do what I want to do, and then I can just pay this dollar amount over here and not have to face the accountability of my decisions. But, but it's not just in the culture, right? This is all over the church. Back to this grace thing. Jesus is our righteousness. We all got that. There is forgiveness for our sins because of Jesus. Okay, I got that. And then we know that in the end, there will be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Got that. Check. And so, we live in a church culture where holiness is oftentimes rendered as nothing more than an afterthought. It's something we'll get to. It's something I'll I'll spend time on if I get a chance to. See, the delusion of sin is this that I can step over the boundary and there will be no accountability. I can step over the boundary and there will be no accountability. Think about Adam and Eve. Think about Cain as he took Abel's life. 
think about it. You know, I, I can twist the detail of the story to get what I want out of the situation. Or, you know, I could be a jerk to that business on the phone because I deserve what they're not giving to me. Or, you know, I can waste my life on TV instead of reading the scriptures. Or I can live in hiding. No one needs to know my sins. The, the enemy says this, and I quote, You can do what you want here. It won't make a difference. You know what? You can talk to that coworker of the opposite sex like you do your spouse. It won't make a difference. You can be mean to your spouse in this conversation. It won't make a difference. You can look at porn. It won't make a difference. You can live for indulging yourself right now for just these few moments, for just this meal, for just this evening, for just this moment, because it won't make a difference. You can gossip with this other person for just a few moments. It won't make a difference. You can give false witness about this other person. It doesn't, it won't make a difference. And then on top of all of that, we think there is some sort of statute of limitations on our sins. That if enough time passes, that I won't be held accountable. If I can just keep it undercover for enough time, then I'm in the clear. Listen, God has no statute of limitations. That's worthy of praise. Peter is telling us that this is a mean lie that we live by. That there is no accountability let me ask you a question. In order to discipline your child, if you have, have kids, or if you're not, I'm sure you can imagine this. <clears throat> in order to discipline your child, what must you first do? At least in part. I'm sure there's other aspects to this, but in part, you are first judging their actions. Right now, we live in a judge-free zone, right? You know, for 15 bucks a month, judge-free zone. God is judging our every deed. When we go to discipline our children, we must first make a declaration. Is this right or is this wrong? God's doing the same thing. God is judging. He says here, our every deed. Indeed, even the deeds of our hearts, if we understand Jesus' understanding of deeds and actions and where they come from. Right? He says in this passage, Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Listen, church, he's not, talking to, he's not talking about people outside the church. And he's not talking about a future thing only. He's talking about a current, ongoing, present reality. So we must, here's the deal, if we think about this value of accountability, we must live life with a deep respect and worship for your Father who is also a judge. Let me say that again. You must live life with a deep respect and worship for your Father who is also a judge. never wanting to step beyond his boundaries, never wanting to displease him. 
Remember, he, again, if we understand Jesus' is under, when he talks about the Sermon on the Mount, and he's helping us understand that, that these outward deeds and actions come from an evil heart, we understand that he is also judging our thoughts. He is judging evil in our hearts that has given birth to these actions and emotions. He is judging our manipulation. He is judging our pride and our greediness. He is judging our waste of time. And He is judging all the times we choose to spend in unwise fashion. One commentator said this, His abhorrence and subsequent judgment for the pagan will be no less for you because you are a Christian. His judgment is impartial. He doesn't just give us a pass on our unholiness because we bear the name Jesus. Fear of God's discipline is a good and proper attitude. If you could write something else down, I would write that one down. Fear of God's discipline is a good and proper attitude. It's a sign of a New Testament church growing in maturity and experiencing God's blessing. Listen, one of the motivations, one of the motivations for a life of holiness is fear of God's fatherly, loving discipline. Fear is not inconsistent with loving God or knowing that He loves us. This this reverential fear is not inconsistent. It's not even inconsistent with finding joy in Him. The fact that He would love us enough to judge something right and something wrong and discipline us accordingly so that we might forsake these empty, frail, tasteless things of this world to enjoy and delight in Him. That is our Father's love for us. Now again, let's describe this fear a little bit because it would be helpful. I, I like Rusty and who he was quoting last week said this, <clears throat> this fear is a, a holy, sus- holy self-suspicion and fear of offending God. A holy self-suspicion and fear of offending God. I want to talk about this self-suspicion thing a little bit more, as Rusty did last week. Here's what I see often in our midst. I'm just going to talk very pastorally here and specifically here. Here's what I see often in our midst. This, This might surprise you. Those who think that they understand the depth of their unholiness... Those who think they understand the depth of their unholiness. Uh, Let me explain. In pride, we have our sinfulness under control. Or in pride, we understand just how sinful we are, and so we're not suspicious of ourselves. So kind of like, we have it categorically figured out, and it's there, and I know when I'm being affected by my sin and when I'm not being affected by my sin, and, and I, I have this thing under control. 
So therefore, we don't question the way we spend our time, or we don't question our finance, or we don't question our interpretation of that event, or we don't question our interpretation of what that person said, or we don't question how we handled ourselves in a conversation, or we don't question why we were offended at something said from the pulpit, or we don't question these things as if we know when our sin is coming into play and when it is not. We know when it can be turned on and when it can be turned off, and we know the boundaries of it. That's not a holy self-suspicion. I'm going to give that examples of what this looks like in just a moment. But what I also see often in in our culture and in our church particularly is that those who want us to be softer on our sin. And we want others to be soft on this. Listen, until we are perfected and blameless and ready for Jesus, we should pursue holiness with determination. Listen, the solution is not being softer in our sin, the solution is joy in Jesus. That's the solution. The solution isn't lowering the expectations of holiness. The solution is exalting Jesus over everything else in your life. Now, how you get there and stuff is hard and it's a difficult journey, I I get that. But this idea of understanding the depth of our unholiness looks like, uh, some examples here, people who don't think they need regular time in the Word. If you don't think you need regular time in God's Word, and, and I really want to define that daily, you should be abiding in the Word daily. So remembering His words, reciting His words, living by His words, that is a, there is a clear command to do that daily. Now, if you can get by doing that without opening this on the extreme regular, um, then you're doing awesome. <laughs> or people who don't think they need other people to know them deeply and to speak into their lives. Or people whose first thoughts in every situation is it must be the other person's fault. Or people whose first thought is, I'm the victim. The default posture of our walk should be this. And I know this doesn't settle well for for a lot of us. The default posture of our walk should be this. I have likely sinned. That conversation I was just had. Listen, listen, I don't get up and preach without sinning. There is evil lurking in and around my heart. The question is whether or not I see it or realize it. You know, I've asked this question before. Do you think God is disciplining you right now? Right, because that's where this, this judging of our deeds is in the context and the idea of that leading to his loving discipline of his children. I I, I oftentimes ask this question, do you think God is disciplining you right now? 
I'm going to stop asking that question. The question is, how is God disciplining you right now? Because that's what a loving father does, and he does it all the time. It's not something for this season of life. The question is, is where is God disciplining us right now? Because he loves us. Because it's for our good, and it's for his glory. So here's the deal. Here's where this, this kind of culminates. If you have the value that there will be accountability for your sin, and if you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're going to get to that in a few minutes, then you will regularly, consistently, and habitually call to God It will drive you towards dependence on Him. Humble dependence on Him. For practical sake, how do we live this out on the horizontal, right? We talk about this often. The, the vertical relationship with God always gets lived out on the horizontal. Very briefly, we live that out, this regular, consistent, habitually calling to God. We live that out on the horizontal by doing things like reading the Scriptures so that we might know the Holy One for whom we are to be holy like. That we would let the Scriptures sift our lives. Living in accountability to others. Even letting God's judgment be displayed to us by others? I mean, Paul talks about we don't judge those outside. What's the implication? We do that inside. Now, this, this is diff that's different. I, I'm going to give this caveat, but it's different than being judgmental, like in a condemning, in a judgy way. That's not what but, but loving work with each other and our holiness, this is something that we if we understand the depth of our sinfulness, we'll welcome from other people. Now listen, I say that with great caution because there are some of us who don't want to pay any attention to the sin in our own lives and we do that by distracting ourselves with the sin in other people's lives. There's a passage for that one too. It's called, Get the Log Out of Your Own Eye so that you can get the speck from your brother or sister's eye. So here's the question. Do we live with a fearsome, awesome God? Not fear of ultimate wrath, but knowing that this world is not, even as Christians, and we're in Jesus, and we're covered by His blood, and we've been saved by grace through faith, and all of that, but we understand that that is not a license to live how we want to, and it's not a license to just haphazardly pursue holiness, but it's, a, it's, it's an enabling. The, the fruit that comes from that is wanting to pursue holiness with determination. So the value that there is accountability, does that shape your life? 
if we're going to live holy lives, then we must value accountability. Two, we must value redemption. The value of redemption, verse 18 through 19. It says this, knowing, go back and read verse 17, 18 is going to be up on the screen, but if you, and if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing, so in this context, actively remembering, he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, as if, you know, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So here's the question, what, to begin with, futile ways inherited from your forefathers, what is that? You know, the, the, the greatest dilemma in all of life is our sin and the separation from God that it brings. And so the futile ways is living a life apart from God for anything other than God. The, the, the pattern of this life, he says, was futile. What does he mean by futile? It means empty, worthless, having no meaning and no lasting results. It's the idea of futile. And this way, right? And, and how do we get to that pattern of life? Empty, worthless, having no meaning or lasting results, right? How do we get to that pattern of life? It is living life for something other than the glory of God. And this was a pattern of life, he says, that was handed down to us, that we, were in, that we inherited from our forefathers. He is saying that this way of living has moved from generation to generation to generation to generation. And what's happened is generation after gem- generation of accumulated tradition and supposed wisdom from our ancestors has led to nothing more than further ways of living that are futile. Let me say a phrase in here again. What's happened is generation after generation we have accumulated tradition and supposed wisdom from our ancestors that is not wisdom at all and not good tradition to follow, but is instead futile. And we define this empty, worthless, living life apart from God for the glory of something other than God. But he says this, but Christ has broken the chain of this inherited foolishness. That Christ has stopped it. He has broken the pattern. He has cut the chain. It's interesting is that the words that Peter uses here is not the idea of simply away from that we've been pulled away from this, but that we've been moved out of this. 
Like we were ransomed from, again, not away from, but actually out of. Meaning that we were a part of it. We were perpetrators of the same foolish inheritance. Ready, willing, able, capable of handing it on to our children and to the people around us so that they might do the same thing. But he says that we were ransomed out of this, pulled away from it. So listen, not only should the reality of judgment motivate us toward holiness, but also must our delight in redemption. This ongoing, active remembering. That is what Peter's saying. This, this continual, delighting, knowing, believing. It's ongoing, daily remembering that you were bought with a price. And what Peter is saying is walk in holiness knowing this. That you ransomed that we were ransomed one commentator said a, a better translate translation of this would be this conduct your lives with fear of god's discipline because you know that god redeemed you out of a sinful manner of life at great cost with the precious blood of Jesus. Here's what Peter's saying. The value of redemption, valuing that in your heart and your mind will drive your holiness. You see, that's, that's the point. What, what does he call the blood of Jesus? What does he call it? Precious. What? Something that's valuable. Something that's important. Something that you can delight in God for. Listen, the most important thing in all of life is this. Our greatest need in all of life is this. A relationship with God. And there is nothing in life that comes close to a relationship with God. The value of the cross in our heart's eyes shows us what is valuable. I like what Tripp said. So when we think about the cross, it immediately declares to us what is important. All of human history was marching toward the cross, and all of history since has been shaped by the cross. The cross shows us what is important to God. Think about that. It was so valuable to Him, this work of redemption and the plan of salvation and the glorying of His people, Reflecting His glory and living in His kingdom and all that that includes. 
was so valuable to God that he gave up his son. That he was willing to pay the price to ransom us from our sin. You see, the cross teaches us what is important. Why? Because it required the death of God himself. It teaches us that life and relationship with God is the most important thing. And that life and relationship with God includes the things that are also important to God subsequently. Things like loving neighbor and learning the word and praying, living in community, pursuing holiness, asking others to speak the gospel to you, so on, so on, and so forth. But life and relationship with God is the most important thing for us. The greatest gift in all of life is the grace of the gift of Christ on the cross. As He came to the cross as the perfect sacrificial lamb, and He lived completely without blemish leading up to it. And here's what Peter is saying. What's more important... What's more precious, silver and gold? Part of his point here is, he uses the word ransom, right? To, to pay a price, to buy out of. So if you carry that thought, again, and I think this is appropriate interpretation, you get to then silver and gold. And what is Peter wanting us to think when he says silver and gold? Is he wanting us to think of how beautiful like silver and gold is? He's wanting us to think about the purchasing power of silver and gold. How valuable it is and what it can buy and what it can get us and what it can purchase, what it can lay before our feet and what it can secure for us and the houses it can buy and the, and the friends it can buy and the comfort it can buy and the influence it can buy. And He wants us to think about those kinds of things. And he's asking the question, what's more important? Silver and gold and what it can purchase. Or the precious blood of Jesus and what it can purchase. He wants us to compare the two. And Peter's ultimate point is this. All the riches in the world could never purchase your redemption. The price was paid by the most precious commodity to ever exist, the blood of His precious Son. The question for us is, do we believe that? Is that a value to us? Is it a chief value to us? I'm not asking, is it an intellectual, are you a sick? Do you assent to it intellectually? Meaning, do you... Oh, yeah, yeah, I agree with that idea. That, that's a good thing. What I'm saying is, do you, do you believe it in such a way that it changes you? Do you live like that? Do you live with a deep sense of gratitude, joy, celebration, and discipline that you have been covered by the blood? Covered by the blood. You know, so when, you know, when that other person will not give you what they want, or the situation doesn't go the way you want it to go, do your emotions in response tell you that the cross is the greatest value in your life? 
that the precious blood of Jesus is enough for me right now. That doesn't mean that that situation went the way it's supposed to go, and doesn't mean I can't be saddened by it, and so on and so forth, but if I am ruled by this, then I am not being ruled by the precious blood of Jesus. It is not a chief value in my life. If your delight is in the redeeming blood, the costly blood of the cross, you will walk in holiness. That means that the times when we are not walking in holiness, we are delighting in something other than the precious blood of Jesus. And we are ransomed from it, and we are living as if we have not been ransomed from it. Listen, we have been forgiving the most valuable gift we could ever receive because of the blood, and that is forgiveness. Listen, when, when we value the precious blood of Jesus, we don't live as covetous, craving people. As Tripp said, marching towards some kind of addiction because our heart isn't satisfied. So listen, we will walk in holiness when we value accountability, when we value redemption and when we value God's sovereign plan. We will walk in redemption, we will walk in holiness when we value God's sovereign plan, God's sovereign saving plan, more specifically. Look at verse 20. He says this, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. I want you to notice very quickly here, notice the events retold in this verse. His plan started before the world started. That God had set his mind and heart on rescuing a people for himself. Then, he goes on, and again, in the storyline here, then at just the right moment, he sent Jesus to the earth to take on human form, to live our life, but to live our life without sin. Let me quote, Every action he took, every choice he made, every situation and location were done for your sake. Jesus was living the life that we could not live so that through his righteousness we could be made righteous before God. Then the story goes on. He was raised from the dead. He conquered sin. Then he conquered death, he says. The ultimate wrath against sin. He conquered death. And then lastly, again, in the storyline, he says that, that God gave him glory. That he exalted Jesus. We know that in part that means he, he raised him from dead to life and seated him at the throne. Seated him on the throne. And he's making everything in this world a footstool to Jesus. He gave him glory. Why? Why? There's, there's multiple reasons. But why according to Peter in this passage? 
God did all of this so that your faith and hope would be in God. Here's, here's what I want you to connect, because I think this is what Peter is wanting them to connect. We've been talking about value, right? The, the value of the blood. We're talking about things that we should value. This sovereign plan was devised and carried out because God valued us having hope in Him. I don't mean that in a sense that God was lacking anything, but I mean that in a sense that He, he loved us And loved us enough to send Jesus to die for us. And to work out His plan of salvation. So that our faith and hope would be in Him. So that in the face of trial, suffering, grief, you could proclaim to the world that there is hope in nothing other than God. That there is hope in His redemption through Jesus. That I have hope for eternity because of Jesus. Again, what does he say? Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that what? He did these things so that my faith in your faith, my hope in your hope, would be in God. So the logical question here is where are you looking for hope? Again, wherever you're looking for hope will determine the holiness for which you strive. Is your hope in getting your child to live a certain way? Right? Then you'll seek a holiness that accommodates that chief desire and hope in your life. Or, or is your hope in life looking a particular way in your home or at your job or your career or with your friends or whatever? Then, then you will seek a holiness that accommodates that Desire, that plan, that hope, that value. Again, the place you look for hope is the place you look to define glory. And if you look in the wrong places, you will walk away with an incomplete or faulty understanding of holiness. In part, that's why God, He does this to set us free from looking for Hope and glory, holiness in anything other than Him. Now, the end, right, of God's plan is not just that we would have faith and hope in Him. This is ultimately for His glory. And what happens, right, when we, who were His enemies, live pointing to faith and hope in Him, it shows just how glorious our God is. Listen, hope in Christ leads to holiness for God. Hope in Christ leads to holiness for God. You can hope in those moments when you're not getting what you want 
You can have hope in those moments. Why? Because your greatest need has already been secured. Right? That, that moment when the situation goes bad with your spouse and he or she just, just makes you angry. Right? You, listen, assuming it's not a righteous anger, <laughs> you don't have to be angry. Why? Because whatever it is that you want right now that you can't have, whatever it is that you're coveting right now, you don't have to covet that because you already have everything you could ever need in God. You're right with God because of hope in Christ. Maybe you've lost your job or maybe you feel alone or maybe marriage isn't what you dreamed it would be. Maybe it's a physical illness. You can have hope because God's sovereign plan through Christ to ransom you and to give you faith and hope in Him that that plan will continue. That it will not stop. That nothing can stop that plan. The question is this, are you satisfied with that? Is that a value that you have that drives you? Is He enough? Listen, your values will determine the holiness that you seek. And we need to have our values realigned every single day. Right? As the song says, our hearts are prone to wander. But it's amazing, though. Let me connect one last dot for you. Or one last set of dots. The values that drive us to holiness are also the values that saved us. At least these ones are. God will judge sin, period. He will judge sin. Second, He judged your sin in an ultimate fashion on Jesus Christ, His Son, while He hung on that cross. He judged your sin. I'll never forget Piper said this uh, in a sermon at TGC a number of years back. You know, we often think that we get justice because Jesus went to the cross. No, no, no. Jesus got justice. Like, God got justice through Jesus at the cross. You and I get grace through Jesus and mercy through Jesus at the cross. We don't get justice at the cross. <laughs> but our sin's not overlooked, right? Right? not one ounce of our sin is overlooked. It's all, it's dealt with on the cross. Grace is not overlooking our sinfulness. Grace for us is God dealing with our sinfulness. Every ounce, every wicked thought, every wicked action, every wicked whip of our tongue, every sin of omission and commission, everything it's dealt with through Jesus. 
So he judged, he judges sin, and he judged your sin and my sin upon Christ on the cross. And thirdly, he worked his plan of salvation so that you could look outside yourself and point to God by faith as the only glorious hope. You see, these facts don't just save you the day you were justified. But these values, these facts, if we value them, continue to save us as the truths that drive you to holiness as we, as, as Peter talks about, in, I'm sorry, Paul talks about in Philippians 2, to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's the same idea here. That we would value these truths of the gospel and they would come to bear in our lives each and every day, driving us towards holiness, for He is holy. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word this morning. Father, thank you for the gospel of your son Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that we can be saved by the blood, that we were ransomed by the blood. Father, help us to realize that faith and hope in you is evidence is the result of, first of all, your regenerating work in our hearts, but then this active living, knowing, and valuing the truths of the gospel. Let us delight. Let us find our joy in you because of the precious blood of Jesus. May the blood be more precious to us than anything else. Father, you loved us and sent Jesus to die for us. May we value that. And let that value drive our pursuit of holiness. That we would not want to do anything that would defame your name, or we would not want to step over the line, even the smallest of situations. And that the places where we know right now that we have stepped over that line, that we would walk it back in repentance. And why would we ever walk back in repentance on these things? Because by faith we believe there is forgiveness because of the blood of Jesus. Father, lead us for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys please stand with us?